and uh, and that's why I don't um, exclude uh, the possibility of uh, United Ireland um, coming about in the the, the next generation. Uh... Civil war politics ended a long time ago in our country, but today civil war politics ends in our parliament. Leo Varadkar, the former Irish Taoiseach and future Irish Taoiseach, welcomed the coalition between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil with those words. Irish politics had been defined by division, whether it was between the pro-treaty and anti-treaty parties of the Republic, or the north-south divide on the island itself. But the Republic is changing, and as it becomes more economically successful and socially progressive, new political forces are rising up to change the country itself. But what does this mean for the Emerald Isle? And what can Europe and indeed the world learn from Ireland's economic success and its political journey? This week, we spoke to former Irish ambassador to the United Kingdom and to the United States, Daniel Mulhall. Ambassador Mulhall is also the author of Ulysses, a reader's odyssey, which takes readers through James Joyce's famous novel, Ulysses. That book is available for purchase now. Alongside Dan, we spoke to Jude Webber, the Dublin correspondent of the Financial Times, about the social and political changes facing Ireland. And for our Patreon subscribers, there is a broader conversation on the prospect of Irish unification. If you would like to hear that conversation, you can subscribe for just five euro a month. We hope you enjoy this episode. Ireland is a country where keen observers of international politics seem to only be aware of its political situation via its relationship to the United Kingdom or through the annual trip to the United States for St. Patrick's Day. But Ireland itself is going through quite an interesting political and social transition at the moment. We're poised for the first handover of the Taoiseach between two parties. That's the equivalent of Prime Minister. Uh, Jude, I'm going to start with you. Could you walk us through how we got to this particular moment in Irish politics and what the handover means? It was a result of the inconclusive uh, 2020 elections. Um, in which the the two parties came up with this um, as a as a as a as a, a way of uh, of clinging on to power might be perhaps too harsh a way of putting it, but uh, it certainly looks like that from an outside perspective. Um, that happened before I was here in 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 Ireland, mm. um, but what they came up with was a plan, a sort of a a plan with a built-in musical chairs, so that um, one party of the two main parties, the two Irish Civil War traditional parties. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael um, would rotate the big offices of state after, you know, halfway through. So we're coming up to that on December the 15th. Um, they have a smaller coalition party, the Greens Party. Up until now, the coalition, you know, has been hanging together. Um, when I arrived in Ireland about a year ago, people would seem to mutter darkly whenever talking about the coalition, you know, if it lasts that long, meaning if it goes its full term until um, elections have to be called by February 2025, mm. I think um, I'm right in saying. Um, and and there was some concern that, that they might not make it until that point. Um, in fact, one of the biggest um, sort of obstacles to that has been removed because the the current Deputy Prime Minister, Tornishta, who will take over Tishov or or Prime Minister on December the 15th, Leo Varadkar, he was under investigation over um, a leak of documents to do with doctors' contracts. Um, and that could have resulted in a criminal investigation. And had that done so, he probably would not have been in a position to take over as Tishov. But 
that's been removed by um, by proceedings having been dropped. So um, so now it's sort of full steam ahead to December the fifteenth when they swap places. Ambassador, this is quite a unique political coalition for Ireland. Um, for those who are unaware of the history of the Irish Civil War, could you give us the historical background on the relationship between uh, Fine Gael and Fiona Fáil? And I do apologise if my pronunciation is off on both of those party names. I suppose Ireland was traditionally a very unusual uh, political uh, system because we had two major parties for you know the best part of 100 years, two major parties um, and one minor party, the Labour Party, and um, essentially those two parties alternated in power. But the even though they're both centre parties, and if you look at them from a point of view of their political um, uh, platforms, it's hard to see um, a very much difference between them these days. But historically, the differences, of course, are very profound because... It all goes back to the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 19, December 1921 between the then united Sinn Féin movement, which had uh, conducted the uh, war of, or steered the war of independence, and the British government, which resulted in a um, dominion status being offered to uh, what became the Irish Free State, which became a, an independent entity uh, or as a dominion uh, or, um, uh, in 1922. Um, that treaty uh, resulted in the hitherto united Irish nationalist republican movement splitting in two between those who supported the treaty with Britain and those who uh, were against that treaty. And a civil war broke out between the two former parts of Sinn Féin. And um, um, one of those parts became... Commonwealth, Gael, which had government held office from 1922 to 1932. And the other part, the part that rejected the treaty, um, remained as Sinn Féin uh, until 1927, when that Sinn Féin split again and Fianna Fáil was created by Eamon de Valera, who went on to be the um, Taoiseach Prime Minister of Ireland between 1932 and 1948, so 16 years uninterrupted, and then had two further terms as um, Taoiseach before he finally uh, retired as Taoiseach and became President of Ireland for for um, for 14 years. So um, there's a long history of these two parties alternating in government. And one of the things that's happened in the last uh, 30 years is that Ireland has become more European also in its politics because coalition government has now become the norm because for a long time Fianna Fáil were large enough to be a single party in government so you either had a Fianna Fáil government or you had a government made up of the other parties uh, in the parliament and now we have a total of eight or nine parties so therefore forming a coalition becomes more difficult the more you have a diversity of parties and difficult then to bring together a viable coalition. And so for me at least, um, the current coalition between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael is a kind of a, is a natural, um, even though it's historically quite a dramatic change in one sense, it means that this is the last, um, uh, this is the last um, hurdle that's been crossed. And now it, it appears that any um, any combination of parties uh, is possible in government. Uh, the only thing being required is that that combination should have a majority of members of our parliament. 
Yeah, I was just saying, I mean, any combination of parties, except that all the polls point to um, Sinn Féin winning the next election or being the very largest party in the next election, but probably not having an outright majority. And so therefore, the question will be very much who will go into coalition with Sinn Féin. Um, and that seems to be something that the parties are very reticent about committing to at this stage. Um, I mean, Dan has much more of a historical sweep on this, but um, <clears throat> but the what what people always tell me is that you know Fianna Fáil would probably be the the most natural partner, although they're the ones that they're distinctly ruling it out at this point. So of course nobody wants to jump too soon, um, and they don't want to to say anything that's being politics. They don't want to back themselves into a corner. But that you know who who will go into a government with with Sinn Fein is or whether Sinn Fein will be able to put together a coalition of leftist and small parties and having the votes, that's the next big question. You've mentioned Sinn Féin a little bit, and they had a very successful result at the, the last election. Um, can you talk us through, we had a little bit of the history, but why are they making such inroads now in Irish electoral politics? One word, housing. Um, Ireland has a massive, massive housing problem. Um, it's a problem of um, availability and a problem of affordability. Um, so basically, there's not enough supply, and what supply there is is too expensive. And it means that young people in particular are finding it very difficult ever to move out and to be able to afford anything. Um, in fact, they, you know, there's been some polling done recently um, suggesting that young people you know, just can't wait to get out of Ireland because they just feel that in many ways it doesn't offer them enough prospects in terms of affordability and cost of living, but housing is a major component of that. So... So Sinn Féin are basically promising to fix that. Um, it's a very intractable problem. Um, the current coalition has come up with a, um, a, a, an unprecedented plan in terms of the, the scale of investment, which they unveiled literally a year ago, last October, um, which doesn't yet seem to have turned the uh, the, the situation around. I think that's a kind way of putting it. I mean, it's 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 increased um, the supply, but perhaps not at the rate at w- uh, which is needed. So Sinn Féin in opposition are able to say all the things that, that people want to hear. They're tired of parties who've been in government for a long time and in, individual politicians who've been in government for a long time and whose popularity, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael's popularity is... 20%, uh, 20 percentage points lower in the polls than um, than uh, than Sinn Féin. So Sinn Féin are, are really managing to present themselves as this party that represents, that will fix the housing problem and therefore appeal to young people, that will be progressive um, in terms of taxation um, and that will, or more progressive, Ireland already has a, a progressive tax, um, tax uh, uh, system, but they are promising to tax higher earners more, basically, and um, and that will offer change and a fresh face and a new way of doing things, which I think is appealing to a lot of people who feel that politics have stagnated a bit. Well, I think we have um, uh, examples uh, all over Europe and beyond of uh, electorates being impatient, uh, frustrated, uh, and responding by, by shifting the voting patterns. As I tried to explain earlier, I mean, when I was growing up in Ireland in the, the 1960s, 70s, and even into the 80s, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael between them had something in the order of 80% of the, 
of the total vote at election time. So it was a remarkably stable political system where you had essentially two big centre parties that shared power between them for, well, in fact, since the foundation of the states, one of those two parties has always been in power. And more recently, uh, uh, in coalition arrangements of various descriptions, but they've always been in power. And this has provided an extraordinary degree of continuity in Irish politics uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, we have had um, an unbroken um, hundred years of, of, of um, you know, stable, stable government, centre party rule, even in the years after the Civil War. And you might have expected when, for example, um, Fianna Fáil replaced um, what's now Fine Gael in government in 1932, 10 years after um, the Fianna Fáil had been, people had been defeated in a civil war. Um, there was a peaceful transfer of power at that time. So we've had 100 years of stable parliamentary democratic rule. And that is no small thing in 20th century uh, Europe, where, um, as we all know, um, movements of, of the extreme um, very often uh, came to power and caused enormous disruption. We never had that political disruption in Ireland. Now, Sinn Féin um, does represent a different uh, style of politics. It's distinctly to the left. I mean, think of it that Ireland has a Labour Party, which has been in business for the last 100 years. They have never been uh, a majority party in government. They've always been, whenever they've been in government, they've always had um, a, a minority status. So they've been, a, they've been a minor partner, they've been a junior partner in a coalition government. Um, the way things are at the moment, the odds seem to favour uh, Sinn Féin being the majority party uh, in a future government. And that, and that is a substantial change to think that because Sinn Féin are clearly, in their policy platform, are clearly to the left of the Labour Party. And yet, Ireland's never had a government dominated by the Labour Party and may at some time in the future, although remember we still have two plus years to go before the next election, so nothing's guaranteed and things can change um, and uh, you know, public opinion is volatile, electoral fortunes can, can swing up and down, but at the moment the opinion polls seem to suggest that uh, Sinn Féin will have something in the, in the order of 30% plus of the vote at the next election, which would mean that it would be difficult but not impossible to form a government without Sinn Féin being involved. Jude, you spoke a little bit about um, how housing is driving this sort of resurgence of Sinn Féin. You also wrote an article recently about rising dissatisfaction among young people. Are we likely to see them continue to drive this political change in Ireland? Or, as you alluded to in that article, is emigration likely to come into play? Um, well, I think, I, think a, I mean, a lot of the people that I've, I've spoken to anecdotally really um you know people you speak to in the street or people that you know young people are considering leaving but not immediately necessarily it's when they finish their course if they're studying or 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 you know perhaps i mean and a lot of the case a lot of times they don't really want to but they feel they're being driven to it now the government's just had a very big giveaway budget um I don't think that's done enough to convince young people to stay. So I think we will see um, a, a rise in um, in emigration among young people, uh, which is which is something that you know there there've often been waves of emigration in Ireland from the middle of the nineteenth century um, in the famine, um, and then you know in in times of economic distress. This is different because 
the Irish economy is booming, but it's um it's a it's a sense that young people just can't afford to live in their country much as they would want to. So that I think that's something that that Sinn Fein have tapped into extremely successfully. It's a time. I mean, the 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 Tijak who will come in on December the fifteenth, Leo Varadkar, is young, um, young, openly gay. Um, was the embodiment when he was Tijak the first time around, um, a few years back. He was the embodiment, really, of young, a sort of a youthful hope. Um, and the rest of the political class um, in the traditional parties, there are some standout um, women ministers and younger ministers. But generally speaking, it seems um, to be a lot of middle-aged white men. Um, whereas Sinn Féin has managed to um, sort of you know, chime with the zeitgeist in a way in, in the sense they've got, you know, they've got women leaders, north and south. They're, they're, well, the, the party obviously is based in the south and and, and Mary Lou MacDonald is the, is the leader, but the, the party in the north um, is also led by a woman who will become the first minister of Northern Ireland if the Northern Ireland government can get back up and running currently uh, because of um, a row over the Northern Ireland Protocol stemming from Brexit. That's not the case. It's not. Uh, it's not functioning. So, in a sense, they're, they're Sinn Fein are able to present themselves as um, as a party that's really very much more in tune with young people's votes. They're saying all the right things that young people want to hear, and, and young people um, are, are fed up of being fobbed off, really. But the other the other big thing that we didn't talk about when we were just talking about Sinn Fein there is the is the one thing that they stand for completely unequivocally, and that is um, a united Ireland. And they are pushing for a border poll, which is a, a referendum to be held on the future constitutional status of Northern Ireland. And they want to see um, a successful border poll within a decade, um, meaning some form of united Ireland. By some form, I say I say some form because we, we don't quite know what form that might take because, um, you know, it's, it's I think despite there, there appearing to be a bit of momentum towards a, a, a border poll growing, we're not there yet, and preparation really in earnest hasn't begun um, on either side to just sort of think about the issues that would need to be thought about. But again, I think that's that's also a, a, um, something that younger people and younger voters might have a different view of if you were born after the end of the Troubles, the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, or if you grew up then, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the historical, the weight of history in Northern Ireland, the, the Sinn Féin's association with the IRA really don't matter to you as much as they might do for older voters. I have to say, I have some doubts about, um, about, about the analysis there of, of the salience of the emigration issue. I mean, what you have to remember in Ireland is that emigration today is not what it was in the past, where people left Ireland and um, essentially never came back. Uh, these days, people go back and forth. I mean, when people, when Irish people move to London or somewhere in, in Britain, they don't see themselves as emigrating. They probably come home half a dozen times a year. Um, so it's not the same um, uh, process as before. Um, the other thing is, I have my doubts that that uh, that many Irish people will, you know, where where will people emigrate to? America is no longer really 
open to any significant number of Irish people. Um, of course, you can go to anywhere in the European Union or you can go to Britain, but you know, going to a European country means having to acquire um, another language, which I think is a very good thing. And I hope more people, more Irish people will, uh, will choose to spend time in a European Union country because that would be very good for our future in terms of being integrated more fully with our uh, continental European partners in the European Union. But I mean, when I was in London as ambassador, what I was hearing then was that Irish people, younger Irish people there were planning to move back to Ireland because they didn't care for some of the atmospherics, some of the political atmospherics of Brexit Britain. And, and uh, you know, Brexit Britain uh, is a work in progress. And let's see how it all, how it goes um, economically in the coming uh, years. So emigration has always got to do with um, a mix of domestic um, economic circumstances coupled with the opportunities that exist to go to attractive, more attractive places uh, as an immigrant or as a temporary migrant. Um, so my, my, my suspicion is, is that, um, that um, uh, this is a short-term uh, problem. The housing problem is, 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 is a problem that, that can and will be resolved by, by um, I mean, it's all a legacy of the crisis of 2009, 10, 11, when our property uh, industry essentially collapsed. And we were building uh, in the period uh, in the middle of the first decade of the 21st century, Ireland was building 90,000 houses a year for a population of less than 5 million. An extraordinary number of houses. We were building not many fewer houses than Britain was, was, was building for a, a vastly larger population. That was an unsustainable situation. The crash came and we went down to building five or 10,000 houses a year. It's now come up to uh, a more respectable figure, but there is a backlog. There is a shortage of housing, certainly, but that, that is a shortage that can be rectified. And in my experience, a lot of Irish people, if they emigrate, want to come back. And in recent years, in fact, we've seen more people coming back than we've seen people leaving. And we've also seen people coming from other parts of the world uh, to live in Ireland. And by the way, in the census results that were announced uh, recently, um, the population of Ireland is now over 5 million for the first time since 1851. So I don't think it's credible to talk about a country devastated or likely to be devastated by, uh, by immigration. Irish people will always have a, a, a tendency to go abroad. We're an island. Uh, I think it's a good thing that people should emigrate for a time. But I don't think we're going to see the kind of... Uh, flows of immigrants that we saw in the um, earlier periods in the 50s and again in the 80s because the opportunities in Ireland are now um, up there pretty much equal to what they are in other parts of uh, Europe. Um, I just want to quickly say we will talk about unification later on uh, yeah. in the episode so if um, yeah. Jude I'm glad you come back in now but if it's on unification we're gonna have to say no, it later. Yeah. Uh, no I was just going to jump in and say that um I, I completely agree with Dan there and that um, that I, I don't see people as feeling that they're sort of exiled away from their home and they, you know, they'll never be able to come back. I think there's there's two things. Younger people are probably more likely to work in the gig economy uh, or not want to immediately perhaps um, in their, you know, early 20s, perhaps not lock themselves into a career and so feel that they're more mobile. And so this you know, inability at the moment to find a place to live or to feel that they can afford to live in their country um, sort of goes hand in hand with wanting to go abroad and, and get some experience. And the other thing is just that one very um, popular destination for um, young professionals is Dubai, um, you know, and that's because perhaps they can 
go there and save and save money and it's seen as it's a very sort of transactional thing they go there they can they can save the money for a deposit for a house um and so it's seen as very practical use of a couple of years or a few years um so i you know i agree with dan completely that they're, they're not going never to come back uh, and and it's 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 sort of seen as a way of of affording being able to stay in okay. some cases and i think the the, the flip side to that um economic transformation of a country is the social revolution that's been going on if you can call it such um the passage of a 34th amendment allowed same-sex marriage in ireland which was quite the news there's a relaxation relaxation of abortion laws facing review this year um it wasn't so long ago that ireland was being understood as the country of devout catholics controlled by its priests um, I remember watching as a young boy Father Ted on television and, you know, thought that was a good depiction of Ireland. Um, but um, is, how, how can we explain this transformation? Because it seems, it seems to me outside pretty, pretty remarkable. Um, is there a link? Is it linked with the economic growth? Is it some kind of um, maybe resentment out of control of the church, with, or especially all the stories that came out on... Uh, pedophilia and so on. Um, Ambassador, how do you explain this, this quite remarkable transformation in two decades? Yeah, well, let me, uh, let me have a go at that. Um, I see four factors at play here. The first is the economic transformation of Ireland. Uh, when Ireland joined the European Union in 1973, our per capita wealth levels were about 60% of the then European average. Now, depending on how you count, but whatever way, whatever way you count or you, uh, you estimate our, our national wealth, we are on a per capita basis above the European average. So that's been a, a total economic transformation of Ireland. A second factor is our membership of the European Union, which I think has definitely broadened perspectives, has definitely changed horizons for Irish people. It's brought us into contact with countries that have different histories and different um, ways of doing things than what we have. And we've, we, I think we've learned from that experience. And also, I mean, European Union policy in many cases um, drove uh, social change. For example, um, uh, equal work for equal pay um, was a policy that was introduced um, at the behest of the European Union back in the 1970s. So that's been an important factor, the Europeanization of Ireland. Um, thirdly, the educational revolution. Uh, I am a product of that generation. In the late 1960s, the then Irish government decided to make um, second level education um, uh, free of charge, high school education free of charge. That dramatically increased the number of Irish people finishing school. I was the first year of that educational revolution. And then five years later, many, many more people from my age group went on to university as I did. And I was the first member of my family ever to go to university. And that was a, a common uh, phenomenon in the Ireland of the early 1970s. So that educational revolution now means that about 60% of our school leavers go on to third level education. We've just recently uh, created a number of new universities. So higher education has become you know, the norm rather than the exception. And then finally, the scandals in the church have definitely eroded confidence in the Catholic Church, uh, which is now struggling um, to, um, to um, attract 
uh, churchgoers is struggling uh, to attract um, people to the priesthood and the religious life. So all of those things combined have totally transformed the mentality of Ireland in this 21st century to a point which would make it unrecognisable uh, from the Ireland of um, my childhood and even uh, the Ireland of, of the late uh, 20th century. Um, Jude, on top of that, um, of those transformations, um, how, how, how linked is that phenomenon of the rise of Sean Fein? I mean, I think all of those things didn't necessarily have to um, pave the way for Sinn Féin to, to gain ground. All of those things could have happened, um, the traditional parties. Uh, and, you know, we've only seen the rise of Sinn Féin really in the last couple of years um, to, to the sustained um, growth to the point that, th- that they're looking at leading the next government. Um, up until then, their results, they might have had a good election, um, a local election or a, you know, a different sort of election, but, but not necessarily... Um, not necessarily a sustained performance at every single electoral outing. So I don't necessarily think that they are um, that they're hundred percent correlated. But but obviously, um, you know, things like um, you know, you mentioned same sex marriage, um, abortion re- referendum. These are these are things that younger people have um, have views on, um, and and younger people um, are a, a, a good percentage of the support of Sinn Féin. But I think the interesting thing in Sinn Féin as well is that they've managed to broaden out their support base, not just to the um, to, to younger people, but beyond that, not just working class people, but into middle class, into university educated people and into middle aged people. Um, so um, so I think it's, it's part of the story, perhaps not the entire story, but um, could Sinn Féin, I suppose the, the flip side is, could Sinn Féin have risen without those things? Um, and, and, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think Sinn Féin's been on a, a big journey of transformation, really. Um, the, uh, the end of the Troubles, the, the conflict in, in Northern Ireland, and the, the gradual... Um, reinvention of Sinn Féin and the fact that they have um you know a very um very sort of personable leader a very charismatic leader compared to um somebody who was very much associated with the troubles who was leading the party before um I think that has also really helped relaunch Sinn Féin in in the popular mind I want to pivot a little bit away from the domestic situation now that we've sort of talked about enough about Irish's politics. Um, Let's talk about Irish soft power. I'm recording from the United States where the presence of Irish culture is ubiquitous. I even play for a rugby team in Washington called the Washington Irish. Um, Ireland's cultural footprint extends beyond just what's in the United States. It has a very strong soft power influence globally. Uh, Ambassador, what do you think is driving that? Well, I mean, I teach um, Irish studies at uh, New York University at the moment, and I have uh, one Chinese student in my class and one student of Indian descent, an American of Indian descent. Of uh, So, um, yes, Irish, Ireland's culture does have an appeal beyond our shores. That is for certain. And I, having been ambassador in the past, I'm now retired, of course, um, in um, Malaysia, in Germany, in um, London and in Washington, I've seen for myself uh, just how uh, how the um, Irish culture has spread around the globe. And you get people who have no Irish uh, background. Uh, during the pandemic, we, we got in touch with a young 
dancer in Virginia, an African-American woman who does brilliant Irish dancing. She's become a bit of a TikTok sensation, Morgan Bullock. So, yes, I think we're fortunate, first of all, that our culture, um, initially our literature um, through the great era of Irish uh, literature of Yeats and Joyce or Casey Singh and, and so forth, uh, a lot of our writers attracted an international appeal. Uh, in more recent times, of course, you've seen the phenomenon of river dance and, and Irish dancing becoming a global phenomenon and people all over the world um, uh, applying themselves to Irish dancing, even though they may have had no Irish links in the past. So we call that the affinity diaspora. But I think most important from, from the point of view that, that we're talking about now is, is the existence in America of Irish America. Now, um, you never hear anybody talk about German America or Swedish America or Norwegian America, although those countries have very significant uh, diasporas here in the United States. Um, the Irish diaspora has remained connected with Ireland in ways that I think are very impressive. Um, you know, they were instrumental in the 19th century in supporting Ireland's um, drive for independence, um, um, you know, in various ways, mainly financially, the Irish, um, and also by putting pressure on the American authorities to support independence for Ireland and therefore to, to, to make Britain have to think about the reaction in America if they were to crack down too heavily on on the Irish independence movement. Then, during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, um, Irish Americans, in the um, name of, of um, um, Ted Kennedy um, and others, um, were very active in uh, pushing uh, the Clinton administration to become directly involved, and Clinton eventually appointed um, George Mitchell as his envoy, and Mitchell brokered the uh, Good Friday Agreement of 1998. I had the privilege of being there as part of the Irish delegation at that time for that historic agreements. And in more recent times, you've seen Irish-American politicians galvanizing themselves uh, to push back against um, efforts to, um, or against developments in, in Ireland that would damage um, the Good Friday Agreement um, through the consequences of Brexit and pushing back against uh, any notion of having to have a border on the island of Ireland and insisting that, um, that Britain should abide by the terms of the Protocol in Northern Ireland. So you have a historic uh, tradition there of Irish-American interest in enthusiasm for admiration for an affinity with Ireland, which has been politically uh, very valuable to us, especially now when there's a, a president in, in the White House who identifies himself as an Irish-American, is proud of his Irish-American heritage. And uh, that has, has to be a factor in the minds of people in Britain when they come to decide what to do about the Northern Ireland Protocol. So I think it all has to do with the history of Irish emigration and the fact that Irish people, when they left Ireland in the 19th century and beyond, felt that they had a cause left behind in Ireland that they wanted to support. And that support has continued for the last 150 years. Um, I mean, I don't really have a great deal to add to that. I think it summed it up very well. Um, it, it certainly is very notable that Ireland has this particular ability to um, to call on the US to to be friends with the US to have inroads into the White House that other countries France Germany whatever might give their eye teeth for um, and you know and it's it's done it, it's done in a, a very careful way um, I'd say also that uh, you know there, there's sort of cultural phenomena um, 
Irish pubs worldwide, you know, the, the exports, the Guinness, the whiskies, things like this that, that Ireland has. I mean, that's it's all built a very strong brand, which Ireland leverages very, very well. Um, but certainly um, next year, we're coming up to the 25th anniversary of the um, Good Friday Agreement, which ended the troubles. And the Irish, uh, the, the US government has let it be known to the UK government very strongly that they do want the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol, this row that's going on that has paralysed political institutions and um, and complicated trade for some people and facilitated trade for other people in Northern Ireland, that the US want that to be fixed by then. Um, and, you know, the, any prospect of a, of a UK-US trade deal in the wake of Brexit is on the back burner for now and has no prospect of getting onto the front burner until um, until this, this situation is resolved. So, you know, Ireland has a, you know, an ace up its sleeve in many ways. Um, I, I want to pivot to, to Europe. We'll come back to specifically the question of Brexit in our Patreon-only um, moment at the end of the interview. But um, on Europe, it seems that Ireland is also capable of punching above its weight very much like it does on the international scene. Um, it has representatives in senior positions in the EU, in the ECB. Um, ambassador, how, what are the objectives, the key kind of strategic objectives that Ireland always keep, um, focuses on? Is it about pushing personnel? Is it about strategic interests? Is it about um, all the fiscal debates? What are kind of the key strategic focus of Ireland at the European level? And perhaps also, without talking about Brexit specifically, how has the departure of the UK changed Ireland's position in the EU? Because it seems to me that the UK leaving the EU also means that Ireland is now a lot more under the spotlight for its stance on fiscal matters. And the UK is no longer capable or is no longer here to play the bad cop role, a role which it adored playing most famously with Margaret Thatcher back in the days, of course. Yes. Well, I mean, first of all, I remember, I'm old enough to remember, because I'm retired now, I'm old enough to remember the referendum um, in 1972 when Ireland decided to join the European Union by a vote of 80-20, I think it was, if I remember correctly. Um, Mm -hmm. And at that time, we joined because the feeling was we had no alternative because Britain was joining. Within six years, Ireland had decided to join the European exchange rate mechanism, which meant breaking the link with sterling. So the history of Ireland's membership of the European Union is of Ireland very rapidly embracing the opportunities and the horizons presented by European Union membership. And from that time onwards, whenever there was a choice to be made between our relationship with Britain on the one hand and our involvement in the European uh, Union project, uh, we chose the European route. We did that when it came to joining the um, European, um, uh, the, the euro currency, and that has benefited Ireland greatly because uh, until we joined the euro, our currency was, well, before we joined the ERM in 1979, our currency was tied to sterling, and we had no say whatsoever. Now we have Irish people at the heart of the European uh, Central Bank, uh, the Irish finance minister, Paston Donoghue, is the president of the Eurogroup. So now Ireland commands influence at the heart of the European Union. But that's been because of a, a, a progressive set of decisions 
by the Irish government and the Irish people who decided in referendums to go along with the uh, the progress of European integration uh, to put to throw our lot in with the European Union and not to be tied to our erstwhile um, um, relationship with the Euro, uh, uh, with the UK. Well, um, interestingly, um, Dan just referenced there the um, the fact that the finance minister of Ireland is the chair of the Eurogroup, the finance ministers of the Euro nations, and Leo Varadkar, the current deputy prime minister who will take over as prime minister Taoiseach uh-huh. on the fifteenth of December, he said recently that this is the most important position an Irish person um, holds in Europe and shouldn't be squandered. Um, Unfortunately, um, it, that could well turn out to be a casualty of the the right. musical chairs government government uh, arrangement because um, because the 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 role is personal. It's elect it, the the chair of the Eurogroup is elected by the other Eurogroup members as opposed to just belonging to the finance minister of a particular nation and therefore can't really rotate um, when uh, the the current finance minister steps aside and and so uh so there's been a, a row recently about whether or not the finance minister if he moves into a different role whether he could take the 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 eurogroup chair with him or not um and there's been backlash from the coalition partners on that so i'm um, so basically i think the upshot of this likely uh, situation is that Ireland will probably end up not being able to hold on to the uh, presidency of the Eurogroup, but um, but the the very fact that that Ireland held it, um, it you know may it may be more symbolic. It it, it may be um, the kind of job that um, I mean obviously Ireland has um, an EU commissioner and uh, and the chief economist of the central bank is Irish, but. Um, but having this position certainly put Ireland in a, a seat at the top table when, for example, last year um, there were very important discussions on hammering out a new uh, international, a new global tax deal, um, which will see Ireland's tax historically low or lower than others tax rate rise. And Ireland was was Ireland's finance minister was able to be a nexus there between Europe and the US and, and, and move between those two worlds because of this position. So it's certainly, and, and that feeds into what we were talking about earlier about soft power. I mean, it's uh, it, it perhaps has been able to give Ireland in in that in that role. Uh, maybe it's been a, a allowed Ireland to punch a little bit above Ireland's weight. Yeah, well, the other thing that I wanted to, to, uh, to say is that Yes, we have um, made a determined effort to um, encourage Irish people to join the institutions as officials of the European Union. And um, we had 12 years, uh, unbroken years, when um, Irish-born people, Catherine Day and then David O'Sullivan, were um, at the helm of the um, European Commission, um, uh, you know, the top civil servants in the European Commission. So that that was a, certainly a, 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 a major win for Ireland. And, and we continue to to try to encourage Irish people to go in and to work uh, in the European institutions. And then secondly, we made a decision there a number of years ago um, to have an embassy in all 27 member states. And I think at one stage we were one of the few, we were certainly the, probably the only smaller country that actually decided that we should have 
representation in all 27 EU capitals. So what that meant was when the Brexit situation arose, we were able to lobby directly through a full network of embassies in each member state to put forward the Irish view. I have been impressed by the solidarity that has come to Ireland from the European Union. I believe that uh, the British government in 2016 believed that it could um, essentially uh, negotiate uh, a deal that would be ideally suited uh, to Britain's needs. And it came up against uh, sharp resistance from the European Union, especially when it came to the situation in Northern Ireland. I'm sure that was a, that was a shock uh, to Britain to discover that uh, Ireland uh, and Ireland's interests were being um, uh, prioritised by the European Union, despite the disparity in size and power between Ireland and the UK. We're going to talk in more detail about relations between the UK and Ireland for our Patreon subscribers. Um, So if you would like to hear that extended conversation about the negotiations between the European Union and the UK over Brexit and from that Irish perspective, please subscribe to our Patreon and you'll get access to that full conversation. Julian, Ambassador Daniel Mohall and Financial Times correspondent in Dublin, Jude Weber, are out. What did you make of this um, really fascinating, quite deep, actually, conversation, especially towards the end in the in the Patreon part on um, on the state of Irish politics, um, you know, given all the turmoil, even the whole conversation about Brexit um, and the death of the Queen. It was quite an interesting moment in Irish politics. Yes, it was, a, it was a fascinating discussion and the sort of range of topics that we were able to cover both on the domestic front and then that more detailed discussion in uh, the subscriber-only segment on Irish unification. But I just want to sort of pause and, mm. and look at uh, Irish politics in general because you know part of what I love about the conversations we're able to have is that we can talk about these broader themes affecting European politics. And one thing that you hear all the time and you read all the time is about a crisis in democracy. Um, I'm in the United States, people are talking about a crisis of credibility in certain institutions. That's true in other countries uh, across Europe. Ireland has a unique model where constitutional amendments are decided by referenda. And a lot of those progressive changes um, that we talked about um, at the start of the episode, at least, whether it was on same-sex marriage, getting rid of blasphemy laws, um, have all been done by referenda. And I think that popular engagement is something that a lot of other countries in Europe can learn from. Those referenda end up with pretty progressive outcomes. But there's a, there's a country that does something similar in Europe, and it's Switzerland. And the results of those referenda are actually pretty reactionary, generally, especially on issues on uh, immigration, on Islam. There was a very famous referendum on the uh, minaret, minarets in, um, for, on the mosques uh in switzerland uh, about a decade ago um so it's, it's interesting that in ireland those referenda um produce some pretty progressive outcomes yeah it's, it's quite fascinating it speaks to sort of the individual cultures of each country but sort of embracing their own model of deciding key questions um and getting change that perhaps the citizens are more keen to to, to see um you know we talked about the rise of Sinn fein 
and how that is stemming, or at least Jude Weber said that it was stemming mostly from a core policy issue over housing. Uh, many countries are facing housing crises and affordability of housing crises. And the fact that in Ireland, that's what's driving the surge in support for a party that hasn't really been in government um, is quite interesting. And a bit of a contrast to some of the other countries in Europe that are facing a bit of political turmoil or seeing those insurgent parties uh, rise up in the polls. Yeah, so I've been looking for housing um, in London this summer. And as I was doing it, one of my friends sent me this this tweet that really blew up. There's like a, I don't know, 100 people lined up um, to visit an apartment in Dublin. And apparently that's, that's the new norm now. I mean, just like a huge line, a huge queue. I mean, like um, second long, lo- longest queue I've seen this summer after the, the queue for, to see uh, Queen Elizabeth. Um, it's absolutely ludicrous. And, and yeah, and I suppose some probably some Irish people were in that key to see Queen Elizabeth, yep. as, as we touched upon in yep. that Patreon discussion um, about Irish unification. Um, yep. I think just one other aspect I was going to quickly mention is the nature of the political coalition of two former rivals divided really since um, the Anglo-Irish Civil War in the 20s, uh, joining yep. up in government um, with similar enough ideological overlap, but divided on that fundamental question of whether they were pro-treaty or anti-treaty during the Irish Civil War. And the handover agreement, um, the fact that that's actually going to take effect on December 15th, barring some extraordinary development, um, when most people didn't think this coalition would last, um, it's Ireland adopting that more European model of coalition governments from different spectrums. Um, you know, when Britain had its conservative Lib Dem coalition, a lot of commentators didn't think it would last a full five years. Um, yeah. Similar commentary in Ireland for the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael coalition, but it's lasting and the handover is still set to happen. Uh, one country that did have a similar one slightly outside of Europe, depending on your perspective, but Israel, uh, when it had a power sharing agreement between Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud and Benny Gantz's Blue and White Party, that never made it yep. to the transition. It never made it to the handover. Um, but this one did showing that there's the degree of cooperation in Irish politics is certainly a positive. On paper, I mean, you know, it's interesting because actually I, I, I love looking at polls. It's one of my favorite things to do um, and see how they evolved and see how they've involved the past 10, 15 years. And and so you look at, at Fianna Fáil in Fine Gael, and you're like, on paper, you're trying to find the differences. I mean... From the outside, obviously I'm not Irish, I've only been to Dublin once or Ireland twice. From the outside, the, the differences feel minuscule, you know? They're both kind of roughly centrist, centre-right. One is perhaps more of a Christian Democrat, one is more of a liberal party, but debatable. And then you understand, it's about it's about a treaty. You know, one, 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 one party... 100 years ago, decided the treaty wasn't good and the other one decided, well, that's good enough. Um, and that still influences politics to this day. Now, what is obvious now is with Sean Fein being so influential, they can no longer um, afford to have this kind of divide which no longer seems to matter as much in modern Irish politics given the time that has gone through. Um, but yeah, it's just a kind of fascinating um, survival of kind of old political uh, division which seemed to be kind of less and less important. Um, there's something else I want to talk about, because we talked a lot about, especially in the, um, in the patron section, about the prospects of a unification of Ireland. 
And I think something we didn't talk enough about is obviously that can't really happen without London allowing a referendum to be held. And I mean, at, at this point, it's really hard to project anything in British politics, given the predicted state of the Conservative Party in the next uh, election. I actually run a, a prediction on the uh, electoral map website, which gave Conservatives, I think, like a, a, a hundred seats, something like that. Uh, and so like people like Boris Johnson, Richie Sunak would all lose their seats. I mean, it'd be an absolute bloodbath. So obviously, you know, they're probably at yeah, that worst right now. Maybe they could bounce back. But if we manage to get away from a kind of short term where it's hard to see any further than the next week, um, in order for reunification to happen, you would need a referendum. And why I think that's going to be really hard is I think people underestimate the kind of impact, the growing impact of the DUP in British politics. Because the way I actually, I was reading something this summer on the French war in Algeria, the Algerian War of Independence. And I was actually quite struck to see how the lobbies of the settlers, the French, but also Italian settlers, the people we had settled in Algeria, the way they were forcing Paris to hold much more maximalistic positions during the Algerian conflict. They were much more distrustful of the locals, the Algerians, but also they were convinced that Paris would abandon them whenever they'd get the opportunity. And I think the DUP lives in a kind of similar, slightly paranoid states with the idea that if they don't push very forcefully for the union, London is just going to ban them at every turn. I'm not saying they're wrong. In the case of Algeria, the settlers were obviously right because in the end, Charles de Gaulle gave independence to, or at least a referendum that led to independence in Algeria. And uh, there's a case that maybe if it wasn't for the DUP, um, London would have separated Northern Ireland from the rest of the of, the, of Great Britain much faster. Um, but I think we have to take that into account. The DUP is going to be a force that is going to do whatever it can to stop unification because they're perhaps understandably paranoid that there would be a kind of oppressed uh, minority in a grand unified island. That's the stance they're going to take and it was the maximum stance that they took uh, especially when they had leverage over the May government following the 2017 election in which she lost her majority yeah. and had to rely on a su- su- uh, confidence and supply arrangement with the DUP, giving them an effective veto over any Brexit deal that she negotiated, crucially speaking, the one that included the Northern Ireland Protocol that has caused so much consternation. And then Boris Johnson, who, of course, had voted against May's deal won a resounding majority and immediately backed May's deal, um, thus condemning the DUP to silence on the issue because they weren't needed in government anymore. And, you know, it's exactly what you're pointing to. They forced a maximalist position on the British government Mm. um, who needed them in order to pass basic legislation. And the result is that Ireland is closer to unification today uh, than it was in... Uh, I'll go with January 2019 when I think it was May's biggest defeat on her deal, um, but really around that time. Um, and that's part of the DUP's pressure campaign on May has put that situation in order. Well, thanks a lot, Julian, for this um, fascinating conversation. Um, I really do recommend you, give, um, you join us on our Patreon to listen to the second half of the interview, um, which was incredibly insightful on 
the prospects of unification um, and I think more generally um, the way Brexit has kind of changed the entire conversation um, in Ireland. It's really, really insightful to get the Irish perspective because I think we all have heard about the, the British perspective for quite a, for quite a lot, but that kind of um, the other side of the mirror is quite interesting as well. Um, so if you like you like the episode, definitely do consider to join us on our Patreon. Yes, and and just one other thing I'll say on that before we jump off is obviously I am British. You spend a lot of time in London, and much of the news that people get about Brexit is coming from British newspapers, whether they're sympathetic to Brexit or strongly opposed. But that Irish perspective, and particularly uh, Ambassador Mulhall, or former Ambassador Mulhall, I should say, who was in London on June 23rd, 2016, when Britain voted to leave. And to get that perspective from him on Anglo-Irish relations um, was really, really interesting, at least for me, because that's something that, you know, I mean, I remember during the referendum campaign, it barely came up. Nobody talked about Ireland. Everybody talked about Turkey, but nobody talked about Ireland. Yep. Yeah, I remember having those conversations with you and we did not talk about Ireland, that's for sure. Um, anyways, thank you so much to everyone for listening to us. Um, thank you so much for all the support. There's been so many downloads over the past uh, few days after we released our season premiere. Um, we're really excited about it. As you can see, we've really done a, a conscious effort to uh, make it as professional as we can. And um, we're so excited for the next few weeks. So please stay tuned. And if you want more content, um, including our monthly book club. Um, uh, please do consider us joining us on our Patreon. Anyways, thank you to everyone and uh, see you all next week. See you next week.